Christ is risen. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us as we open up our time in God's Word. Heavenly Father, once again, we do not ever want to approach your Word flippantly. We don't want to approach your Holy Scriptures, which reveal your awesome and majestic character, which reveal our wickedness and our rebellion and our mutiny against you, and yet the hope of Christ, risen, ascended, exalted to your right hand. We don't ever want to approach your word, your Bible, flippantly. And so, Lord, help us. Give us teachable hearts, soft and tender hearts, to receive your word in the power of your spirit. Help us to walk away uh, changed this morning. I pray that you would comfort those who are in Christ, believers who have committed their lives to following you. I pray that uh, we might find great encouragement in this passage of Scripture. And I also pray, Lord, that for those who are here this morning who have not given their lives to you by faith in Jesus, that, Lord, you would quicken people from spiritual death this morning. I pray, Father, that you would save souls. I pray that you would draw people near to yourself, that you would show them the greatness and the majesty and the wonder and the glory of your Son and what he has accomplished on the cross and what you did in raising him from the dead. Lord, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of our morning's message is of, of First Importance, and we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So if you're not there, turn in your Bibles there. And if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in front of you, or you can always share with somebody sitting next to you, okay? We want you to follow in God's Word, because that's what we do every Sunday morning. We want to point you to the Scriptures. Amen? And what God's Word says in His Word. Well, as you know, this month we have especially focused uh, our attention here at Calvary on missions, uh, Missions Month. And uh, it's just been so exciting to hear what the Lord has done in the lives of many who came in uh, from all over the country uh, this month and all over the world. And it's been so wonderful to hear uh, how the gospel is progressing in other places of the world. And, you know, I believe that celebrating and proclaiming the bodily resurrection of Christ, as we're doing this morning, is the perfect capstone to our focus on mission, as well as, uh, as a springboard as we continue with 2016. And I say capstone because Christ's glorious resurrection and His ascension marked the conclusion of His personal mission here on this earth before He ascended. And springboard, I say, because his glorious resurrection and ascension was that, that epic, monumental event that catapulted the church to mission here on earth. What our team going to the Philippines is going to be doing, that we, who we prayed for earlier, they're going to go and proclaim the risen, ascended, exalted Christ in the Philippines amongst brethren that we have there. Christ's resurrection is essential, beloved. Christ's resurrection was the seed for the church's birth and growth. Without the resurrection, there is no church. Without the resurrection, there is no mission for the church. Without the resurrection, there is no hope for believers. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are still dead in our sins and awaiting eternal separation from God without the resurrection of Christ. But because Christ rose from the dead, because He rose from the dead in bodily form, we who believe in Christ will rise as well. Because Christ rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, we who are lovers and followers of Christ are conquerors and victors as well. And it is this epic event of Christ's resurrection that is at the heart of the gospel. The, the gospel which, which Paul gives special attention to here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he essentially makes the point that without the resurrection, the gospel, which means literally good news, is no good news at all. And it was not that these believers were denying that Christ himself had risen in bodily form. Rather, it was that they, they had their doubts that believers would also literally, physically rise from the dead. We know this from chapter 15, verses 12 through 19 that we read earlier, where the concern is explicitly stated. 
If they deny that those in Christ, as Paul is writing to them, if they deny that those in Christ will be resurrected, then they are denying that Christ Himself arose bodily at the end of the day. And if they do that, then they have made God a liar. Because He was the one that raised His Son from the dead. And everything that Paul has preached to them and their faith is vain and dead. And all those who witness Christ's resurrection are deemed liars, and they are still dead in their sins if there is no resurrection of the dead. Not only that, but all believers who have died in Christ have no hope, and neither do those who are still alive in Christ do they have hope beyond this earthly life. And so Paul wants them to realize the implications of doubting the resurrection of the dead. And he takes it back to the gospel and Christ's own resurrection as the basis for the believer's ultimate hope that the believer too will rise from the dead. See, their problem was that they were buying into the Greek philosophy of the day, which essentially taught that spirit was good and matter was evil. And that the mission of the human being was to find salvation by escaping the corrupt human shell of our body. It was a sort of philosophical dualism that made wrong, sinful distinctions between the goodness of the spirit and the evilness of the body. This questioning of the bodily resurrection of the dead and ultimately the believer's physical resurrection in Christ was problematic. For Jesus himself had taught the resurrection. First of all, concerning himself and others who in him would rise as well. In John chapter 11, he says concerning himself in the very context of the raising of Lazarus, that he himself was the resurrection and the life, and that all those who believed in him would rise from the dead as he himself would rise from the dead. Jesus also said in Mark chapter 8, Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14, Paul had already reminded them that God had not only raised the Lord Jesus, but would also raise us believers up through his power. So this questioning of the believer's bodily resurrection was in contradiction to what Jesus and others had taught them. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes to correct their thinking concerning the resurrection of the saints. And he does so by articulating to them anew the glorious gospel of Christ that was preached to them. And through this articulation of the gospel, they will realize that they have great, great hope Because of the risen Christ. Now how does he do this? He does it in two ways. First of all, and this will be your outline. First of all, he reminds them of the crucial importance of the gospel. In verses 1 through 2. And secondly, he reaffirms the comforting truths of the gospel. Of which the resurrection is at the core of gospel truth. In verses 3 through 11. Okay? So first of all, let's look at the crucial importance of the gospel. The crucial importance of the gospel in verses 1 and 2. Look at verse 1. Now I, I make known to you, brethren. In other words, I'm not introducing you to something you don't already know, but crucial gospel truth you already know. You need to be reminded of this in view of your doubts, of your concerns. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. The gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now notice how in convicting fashion, Paul reminds them of the crucial importance of the gospel through four statements in verses 1 and 2. He says in verse 1 that Paul preached this gospel to them. Secondly, this is the gospel that they received. Thirdly, this is the gospel upon which they stand. And then in verse 2, they are presently being saved by this gospel. 
And then, of course, he follows up with a warning to those among them who are not standing firm in the gospel, giving evidence that perhaps they never belong to the Lord in the first place if this is not the gospel they are standing firm upon. Notice first that the gospel came to them by way of Paul's preaching. If anyone could bear witness to the authenticity of the gospel and the glorious resurrection of Jesus, it was Paul. So Paul passed on this gospel of the risen Christ to them. And we know that this gospel that he preached to these Corinthian believers did not originate with Paul. Because according to verse 3, this gospel was passed on to Paul. Paul received it from someone else. And we know from Galatians 2 that Paul had received the gospel by revelation from Christ. Not based upon or from human ingenuity, but from Christ himself. We know from Acts that other faithful believers had invested into Paul, trained him and deposited the truth of the gospel into him. And so Paul is merely passing on this precious gospel to the Corinthians. He says, the gospel which I preached to you that I had received myself. Secondly, this gospel they had received according to verse 1. Which means that they had embraced a tradition of, of, of doctrine that had been passed on to them. Earlier in the letter, he talked to them about the tradition of the Lord's Supper that had been passed on to these Corinthian believers. And he articulates to the Corinthians that tradition of the Lord's Supper. Well, Paul also had passed on the tradition of the gospel to these Corinthian believers. And they had believed it, and they had embraced it, they had received it. And notice in verse 1 as well, that thirdly, they are standing in this gospel. And the tense of this, this verb, standing, is the perfect tense, which points to the abiding results of their having received the gospel in the past. In other words, they are presently standing firm in the gospel. And fourth and finally, this is the gospel by which you are saved, he says, literally by which you are being saved. And here is the crucial importance highlighted. This gospel has saving power and implications for their eternal destiny. Because we know from the context that this is salvation from the just wrath of God for our sins in light of the risen Christ. Now listen, these believers needed to be reminded of the crucial importance of the gospel, beloved. Preach to them. Because the thinking of the age and of their culture was infiltrating the church. It was counter to what the gospel had said and to what they had delivered to them in that pure gospel, to what they knew to be gospel truth. They were allowing themselves to be, to be influenced by the, the Greek culture of the day. And what a fitting message for us, for the, to those of us today. It is always the case, beloved, especially in beautiful occasions such as Resurrection Sunday. To be reminded of the crucial importance of the precious tradition of the gospel that has been delivered to us. We, who in our current day and age, are also in the midst of a battle, are we not? Of a spiritual warfare where everything around us, in our country, in our society, and all over the world, everything around us is crying out, deny God, deny His Son, deny the hope of the gospel, deny everything you have ever heard from the Bible to be true, including the core truth that there exists a risen, exalted Savior whose life, death, and resurrection has direct implications for your very eternal destiny. We are being told by our society that we need to suppress all of that. The great conqueror of sin and death. That maybe perhaps he was just a mythological figure. That he really wasn't everything that he claimed to be. The preeminent one as we've been seeing in Colossians. And that his person and his work has no direct bearing upon your eternal destiny. As the Corinthian believers had a Greek culture influencing them, infiltrating the church, taking them away from the hope of the gospel of Christ risen. So we, beloved, we too must stand firm in what we believe to be true concerning the risen Christ. And so Paul is saying, Brethren, I'm not giving you new news, but simply reminding you of the crucial importance of standing firm upon the gospel of the risen Christ that we have delivered to you, that you have received, if indeed you are standing firm upon that gospel. 
And that is the warning that he gives them. So typical in Paul in verse 2. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Why does he say that? He says it because among those who are believers, listening to the solemn words of this letter, there are those who may not believe the gospel and are not standing firm in it. Who perhaps in the midst of a pagan culture, an anti-God culture similar to ours today, full of Greek philosophical dualism, these people no longer felt that this gospel of a risen Christ was true and that those in Christ would also rise from the dead as well in light of the risen, exalted Christ. And can I just tell you, times have not changed a whole lot, beloved. We are living in desperate times in this culture, are we not? Desperate times when the great truth of a risen and exalted Christ, as I've said, is being suppressed. And even people who attend churches are questioning whether Christ risen has any ramifications for their personal lives, their holiness, their putting to death the deeds of the flesh, or for their future eternal destiny. There are many people wrestling with this. There are those who have repeatedly attended churches, heard the gospel of the risen Christ, heard concerning the fact that in Him you can find the forgiveness of sins, that you can find life abundantly on this earth, and one day dwell with God in perfect, unhindered by sin, fellowship with Him. You've heard those truths many, many times, and you simply won't believe. You simply won't believe. And it is not because you don't have enough evidence. Can I say that? There has been abundant evidence given to you. And if you own a Bible, there is a plethora of evidence, sufficient evidence for you concerning the fact that these things are true. The issue is not a lack of evidence, my friend. The issue is that you are unbelieving. It is the sinful, wicked sin of unbelief. Some of us this morning who are believers need to be reminded of the precious truth of the gospel of the risen Christ because you in turn, as you look at the pagan post-Christian culture around you, you are wondering if there's something better that awaits you in the Christian life on this earth. Is this my best life now? Some of us are wondering about that. As we look at the world around us, is this it for crying out loud? Is there anything better going to happen? Can I remind you, beloved, this is not your best life now. It isn't. If you look around and you just watch the news, you will see that there's nothing that this life has to offer you that is getting any better. It's everything is getting worse. And Resurrection Sunday is a wonderful opportunity to both celebrate the resurrection of Christ and listen to me, be reminded of the fact that because Jesus rose from the dead, we who are in Christ have great hope, regardless of how seemingly evil our society may be getting in the world around us. I hope that you find great comfort in that believer. Because that is our great hope, is it not? So having reminded them of the, of the crucial importance of the gospel, now Paul is going to comfort them with the precious truths of the gospel. That's our second point, the precious truths of the gospel. And as you hear these comforting truths, I want you to relish and feast, as I, as I did in prayer and in this wonderful passage of Scripture, I want you to relish, beloved, in the beauty of the gospel of the risen Christ. Because these are precious, undeniable truths of the gospel that should bring great comfort to us in challenging and changing times. Great, great comfort. So he secondly reaffirms the comforting truths of the gospel. Look at verse 3. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And later on he says, and that he appeared. And he goes on expanding upon all those witnesses to whom Jesus appeared, who could, who were given undeniable evidence of the fact that he did indeed bodily rise from the dead. So notice, as a faithful messenger, 
Paul delivered a precious message to these believers in the gospel of the risen Christ. And this message, he says, was of first importance. What does he mean by that? He doesn't mean that there's nothing else of importance in the Christian faith. What he's highlighting here is that this is critical, crucial gospel truth for them that should bring them great comfort rather than doubts concerning their future as saints in Christ. What he is about to reaffirm is of first importance concerning comforting truths of the gospel. And before looking at four of those, I just want us to make a couple of observations in here, okay? First of all, notice this, that in verses 3 through 8, the whole focus and the subject matter is Christ. He is the focus and the subject matter of verses 3 through 8. What we observe in verses 3 through 8, with the exception of of two verbs, is that Christ is the subject of every single verb. He's pointing them and us to Christ, to put our hope upon Christ. Notice this in verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And here we go. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Verse 4, and that Christ was buried, and that Christ was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that Christ appeared to Cephas, then implied He appeared to the twelve. And then He appeared to more than 500 brethren, verse 6, at one time, most of whom until, remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Verse 7, Christ appeared to James, and then implied Christ appeared to all of the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared to me also. Who is the subject matter to whom Paul is pointing as beloved? Christ. Christ. The person Of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the observation that I make for us is this. This gospel message. Is first and foremost a message about Jesus Christ. And what he has done for us. Rather than first and foremost. A message about us and how we can be saved. The focus is his glory. And his exaltation. In the redemption of sinners. Is it not? So Christ is the focus of verses 3 through 8. One pastor theologian says this, quote, How glorious the truth that it is Christ's story which gives meaning to my story. Not my story which gives meaning to Christ's. This indeed is the beauty of Christ's resurrection. The gospel is about Christ first and foremost, end quote. The second observation that I want you to notice as well is this. That the gospel that Paul received by revelation from Christ and by instruction from, uh, by other, from other brethren was, notice in verses 3 and 4, in accordance to the Scriptures. Twice, verse 3 and verse 4 that appears, that phrase. And the meaning is in accordance with or in conformity with the Scriptures. In other words, this gospel message is consistent with Old Testament Scripture. It doesn't contradict the Old Testament Scriptures. These precious truths of the gospel are not new in the sense that the Old Testament speaks nothing concerning the death and the resurrection of a coming Messiah who would come. The cross and the resurrection, beloved, are the climax of the events of salvation history as revealed in the Old Testament. And when you stop and think about it, The gospel of the risen Christ is ultimately because the scriptures are the very word of God, the very revelation of God. The gospel of the risen Christ is a supreme example of God's faithfulness to bring about all that he promised he would bring about. This is in accordance with the scriptures, these comforting truths that he's going to give us. So what are those four comforting truths of the gospel? Notice, first of all, in verse 3. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. There's the first precious comforting truth of the Gospel. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That title Christ is loaded with meaning. It means Messiah anointed one and it pointed to the ultimate messiah who would come in fulfillment of the old testament promises of a forever king hundreds and hundreds of years of of prophecy beloved and when the new testament opens here comes jesus christ in fulfillment of all of god's promises 
Isaiah 53 portrays the coming Messiah, the Christ, as the suffering servant who would be wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. For those who were paying close attention then to the Old Testament Scriptures, they understood that the coming Messiah would be a suffering Messiah who would suffer and He would indeed die. He would die. But Christ would not die as any other common man who dies because that wouldn't be good news, the fact that Jesus came and just died. That wouldn't be good news, would it? His death, beloved, was an atoning death, a substitutionary death for sins, your personal sins and my personal sins. Notice what Paul says in verse 3. He says that Christ died for our sins. See, few people today would deny that Jesus was a man who died. Get into some conversations and you'll quickly find that out. Few people would deny that he was a great moral teacher, a great man of mercy and compassion and kindness, who suffered greatly, if indeed he was even real. But left to itself, the fact that Jesus died is no good news at all for sinful human beings who are enslaved to sin and await the fullness of God's wrath as punishment for our sins, is it? That Jesus died left to itself is no good news at all, beloved. What makes good the gospel good news is what Paul says in verse 3, that Jesus Christ died for our sins. That He died for our sins. That according to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24, that He, Christ Himself, bore our sins. Notice the personal side of that. My sins, not those committed by others toward me. And I'm simply the victim of somebody else's wrongs and sins committed against me. My own sins. He bore my sins. My rebellion. My mutiny against Him. He Himself bore our sins in His own body on the cross, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, for by His wounds you and I are healed in Christ. Right? According to Isaiah 53, verse 5, Isaiah says that He was pierced, wounded through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging, we are healed. That God's wrath was satisfied by Christ's atoning, substitutionary death. Him dying in your place so that you as a guilty sinner can be forgiven by faith in Christ. This is indeed glorious good news, beloved. And should bring great comfort to our souls. Amen? Great comfort. Now as essential and precious as Jesus' atoning death is, His death was not the end of the precious comforting truth that Paul gives us here, that he reaffirms to them and to us. This is why he continues. It's not the end of the gospel. There's more. He says, secondly, second comforting truth in verse 2, and that he was buried. And that he was buried. And I ask you a question. Why, Paul? Why is he reminding them of Christ's burial? Why does he articulate that as a precious comforting truth? Why not just jump to the fact and cut to the chase that Jesus rose from the dead? Why not just cut to the chase and say that? And I think the answer, beloved, lies in the fact that Christ's burial confirms and validates the fact that Jesus indeed died. He did indeed die. Because listen, according to Jewish custom... When you hear burial, you understand that certain acts and activities were done to a dead corpse, do you not? What happened to a dead corpse? According to Jewish custom, the body was washed. Jesus' pierced body, bloody body, dirty body, beaten body was washed in preparation for the burial. It was rinsed. It was carefully anointed with precious, fragrant oils. And then there were garments especially prepared to clothe that, uh, that body, laundered for the dead. And he was clothed and wrapped in those linen cloths, those precious, especially laundered clothes for his burial. 
The Gospel of John notes that as part of the preparation for Jesus' burial, his body was bound in linen cloths with spices, as was the burial custom of the Jews. So there was a whole process of burial, beloved, that, that, that was followed according to Jewish custom, led by Joseph of Arimathea. And Paul says, you want to be reminded of a precious, comforting gospel truth that should give you great hope that Christ indeed rose or died and rose? He was buried and people saw him according to Jewish custom. This is Paul's way of reaffirming that Christ had indeed died for he was buried. But he doesn't stop there. For there were many people who suffered and died and were buried in the same way. If this is where, where the message stops, and that is no good news at all either. Even Christ's burial either. It's, it's incomplete. This is why Paul continues, beloved, with the third comforting truth in verse 4. He says, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. On the third, third day, in accordance with, the, with what the Lord Jesus had told His disciples repeatedly in the Gospels, this same Jesus, the same Jesus who had been beaten and who had been spit upon, who had been ridiculed and crucified and confirmed dead and buried, according to Jewish custom, rose from the dead. Conquering sin and death, beloved. The same Jesus who in devastating fashion had a crown of deadly thorns put on his head. He was pierced through with a spear to his side. Confirmed dead by all who watched him upon that cross. God raised from the dead. Death could not hold him down. For the power of God was greater than sin and greater than death. Well, the first Adam, as Paul later on tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 22 and following, as the first Adam plunged humanity into sin and death, the second Adam, the risen, ascended, exalted Christ, catapulted all those who believe in Him to victory over sin and death. This is, this is cardinal, Christian, non-negotiable doctrine, beloved. And it is the basis of our hope, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and thus our resurrection from the dead in Christ. Our eternal hope. And the New Testament supports and highlights the epic resurrection of Christ in a resounding way. All four Gospels account and present not a dead Christ, but a risen, living Christ. All four Gospels. A Christ who rose in literal bodily form, who walked and talked and ate the great fish of the day. Right? In his, in his resurrected state. And not only the Gospels bear witness of the bodily resurrection of Christ, but the New Testament gives ample evidence that Christ rose. The New Testament contains over 100 references to the resurrection of Christ. In Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, it says that Jesus appeared to his disciples in that resurrected bodily state for a period of 40 days at different intervals. And eventually, they literally physically saw him be taken up into heaven and disappear into the clouds. And then Peter opens up the first sermon of the church in Acts chapter 2 and verse 24. And he preaches the resurrected Christ. He says in Acts 2.24 that God raised us, God raised up Jesus, putting an end to the agony of death. He preaches a resurrected Christ in fulfillment of all of the Old Testament scriptures. The things that were promised concerning this Messiah that would come. He says that Jesus that who you crucified, he is the risen, exalted one. He says in Acts chapter 3, verse 15, Peter again preaches, confronts the people, and he says, But you disowned the holy and righteous one, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, Jesus, the one whom God raised from the dead. And later on in Acts, it was the risen Christ who appears to Saul and commissions Saul and, and he's renamed Paul later on. And he goes on to preach the, the gospel to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. 
And later on, Paul stands in trial in Acts chapter 23 before, before the Jewish religious leaders. And he tells them, I'm standing on trial before you for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And in Acts 26, he bears witness of the resurrected Christ before King Agrippa. And on and on it goes. It goes. Christ's literal bodily resurrection and His subsequent exaltation is the glorious capstone of the Gospel, beloved. It is of first importance. Of first importance. And the resurrection is undeniable. We may ask the question, but Paul, were there witnesses who saw this? Give me some evidence. Did they re- How many people? And Paul would say there is resounding evidence. Yes, there's great evidence. And he gives us that in the fourth wonderful, precious, comforting truth. In verse 5, he says, And he appeared. He appeared to Cephas. Then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then all of the apostles. That James, by the way, is the Lord's half-brother, the leader of the Jerusalem church. Then to all of the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. There is undeniable and comforting evidence of the resurrected Christ. Paul says he appeared to prominent leaders. Cephas, who is Peter, and James, an early leader in the Jerusalem church, and to me as well. He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time so that it cannot be said that their testimonies are contradictory, by the way. Some of those people were even alive. 1 Corinthians was written some 25 years after the resurrection of Christ, approximately. So there were still those who were eyewitnesses, believers of the resurrection, of the resurrected Christ, who were undeniable witnesses of our Savior. Listen. No one can make the claim that they worship a risen Savior but biblical Christianity. No one can. And prove it. Do you understand? Buddha's followers have never claimed that Buddha rose from the dead and they can prove it. Have you ever heard a Buddhist say that they, that they worship a risen Buddha? I have not. And I've talked to many Buddhists. Joseph Smith's followers have never claimed that Joseph Smith is risen indeed. He's not risen indeed. He's dead. He's a human being, just like us. He's dead. You want to talk about the Muslim religion? Every year, Muslims visit Muhammad, who's buried in Saudi Arabia. Hundreds of pilgrims visit his grave to this day. They don't worship a risen, exalted, ascended Muhammad. They don't. They can't claim that and prove it. Great philosophers, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, thinkers that people point to in this day and age, in their atheism, in their anti-godness, are all dead men. All of them are. There's only one risen, ascended, exalted One, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, our King, our Redeemer, the one who is coming back, beloved. Only one. You can suppress this truth. You can try to deny it. But one day you will need to answer to God for rejecting the truth that He raised His Son Jesus from the dead as He said He would. And it is His testimony against yours. I wouldn't want to be there on that day. Amen? So Paul addresses their doubts about the saints being raised. As he does so, he comforts them with gospel truth of which the glorious resurrection is the capstone. And then he begins to draw out some implications in the rest of the chapter that we can just glean from. Look at verse 20. He begins to draw out the implications of Christ's resurrection for their own resurrection from the dead. For those who are in Christ, he says in verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. He's been making that point that he indeed has been raised from the dead. So that's got implications for you who are in Christ. He says, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And those who are asleep refers to those who have physically, in a biological sense, died. 
Paul says Christ is the first fruits of a new harvest of those who will literally and bodily form rise from the dead in Christ. Those who, who trust in Christ as Lord and Savior of their sins, who follow Christ, follow one a risen Savior who is the pioneer of a new creation, and we will reign with Him in a coming kingdom that will be beyond anything, beloved, that we can ever imagine. This is comforting truth for the discouraged Christian, is it not? The question is, do you believe this? I ask you that, and I appeal to you this morning. Do you believe that Christ is the risen Savior? Because you want to know a staggering statistic that's going to potentially blow your mind away or not. Ready for it? You will die. Physically. This is a 100% undeniable and sure truth. You will die. Every human being will die. Bank on it. You can spend your whole life in self-preservation, purchasing all of the beauty, preserving and enhancing creams and lotions that you want, trying to suppress the inevitable aging process and the deterioration of your body that's taking place. You still will die. And the Word of God says, it is appointed for men to die once, And after this comes judgment. All human beings will die. But I want you to think about this as well. All human beings will also rise again. All human beings will rise again. Unbelievers and believers. And the question is, the only question is, what will you rise again to? What will you rise again to? Will you rise again to eternal punishment in hell, away from the presence of your Creator who created you alone to be the one that glorifies Him supremely on this earth? Will you rise to that, to eternal separation from Him? Or will you rise again to eternal fellowship with your Creator in a literal, physical, glorified, unpained body, unhindered by sin? What will you rise to? See, beloved, people live in fear of death. Whether we want to admit to it or not, each of us, in each of us, apart from Christ, there is the frightful and crushing reality that we won't live forever in this life. That this physical life as we know it is coming to an end. Don't take your chances as to what will happen to your eternal soul. Each of our lives are coming to an end. But the risen Christ promises repentant sinners who lay down their weapons of mutiny and rebellion against His Lordship, forgiveness, forgiveness and reconciliation to your Maker and a new life beyond this earthly life, quality of life in the present and a much better life beyond what we can imagine into eternity, beloved. Because He lives, repentant sinners who trust in Christ can live eternally as well, beloved. But we must turn from our sins and believe in Christ and trust Christ as the only one who qualifies to be the sufficient sacrifice for your sins and for my sins. Jesus said in John 11 concerning Himself, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Think about that. He is the source of life. And having risen from the dead, he is the only one who can deal with our wretched condition, our desperate predicament of wickedness and rebellion. And our punishment that is coming, my friend, if you don't turn from your sins and put your faith in the risen, exalted Jesus, the Lord of the universe. And for we who are believers, the resurrection has a direct bearing upon our outlook of life and our Christian service, does it not? As we look at the society and the world around us, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, as we look at everything that is taking place and growing opposition, 
and hostility toward God and to His Word and toward God's people, we know that we who have believed in Christ can stand firm in our trust in Him and that we can cry out. As 1 Corinthians 15.55 says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And according to verse 57, we can cry out and give thanks to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, no matter how bad things get, the worst that can happen to us is physical death on this earth, right? What does God promise beyond that? Eternal life in His very presence. What about our present Christian service? Are there implications for the, for the resurrection of Christ, for the way that we serve the Lord For the way that we live in the here and now. And the answer that Paul would give us here in verse 58 is yes. A resounding yes. Look at what he says in verse 58. Therefore. Therefore. Which points to all that Paul has said in 1 Corinthians 15. In other words, in view of the great reality that Christ has risen from the dead. And you believers will literally physically rise as well. In light of that, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing, because you know this factually, that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Because He lives, we live this life knowing that our service for the Lord and for His people is not in vain. Listen, Christian, your life in the here and now matters. It is your introduction into the life to come by virtue of your bodily resurrection from the dead because you have placed your faith in King Jesus. Because He's risen, you will rise again. So your service on this earth and the difficulties that you go through toward your sin and the struggle, private and public with sin, all of those things are not in vain. Continue to pursue holiness in the fear of Christ. Continue to, to abound in the work of the Lord, immovable, steadfast, placing your face, you're, you're, you're fixing your hope upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Your work is not in vain in the Lord, beloved, because of a risen, ascended, exalted Lord Jesus. You know, one of my favorite passages. In all of Scripture is Acts 1, 1 through 11. Because there we're comforted with the fact that upon Christ's ascension, the angels who were standing there alongside of the, the Jesus' disciples who were watching Jesus ascend in bodily form and then disappear into the clouds, these angels look at the disciples and they say, what are you staring at essentially? What are you staring at? This one whom you've seen disappear will come in just the same way as you have watched Him go into heaven. They comforted them with that reality. And, of course, before that, Jesus had already told them, told His disciples, you have a mission to fulfill. Don't focus upon the times or the epics of the fullness of the fulfillment of God's plan. You shall all be my witnesses upon this earth. And they knew as they watched their King ascend, and disappear that he would come back, that he would return. See, despair, beloved, should never be in the believer's vocabulary because we have a king who's returning. But, oh, Kempis, the world is coming to an end. Don't you see it? Wouldn't you agree with the fact that the world is coming to an end? Preach it. Yes, absolutely. It is coming to an end. You better believe the fact that the world is coming to an end as we know it in all of its wickedness and all of its corruption. We are watching Romans 1.18 and following. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and ungodliness and unrighteousness. We're watching it before our very eyes. And you know what? It shouldn't surprise us because God told us that that would happen in His Word. But He also, beloved, gave us hope, did He not? Hope that Jesus is coming back, the risen, ascended, exalted Christ, to deliver the final death blow and to reign supreme with all of those who belong to Him as well. Comfort for you and I as believers is the risen, ascended, exalted Christ. And may I remind us as well, as I just mentioned and alluded to, that not only is the resurrection a great comfort to us as believers, 
But it is the glorious truth that, like the early church, should propel us to mission on this earth. Think about what happened in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Jesus spends time with his disciples and his followers for a period of 40 days at different intervals. And then eventually they see him ascend. And what do they go out to do, the disciples in the church? They're on mission. What is the mission? The proclamation of the exalted Christ. God has glorified himself in the the salvation of sinners in and through his risen, ascended, exalted son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the message that we proclaim. We are on mission. So the resurrection is not only a comfort to us as believers, but it is also a propeller to mission on this earth. The higher your view of the majesty and the glory of the exalted Christ, beloved, the more your love for sinners should grow because you know that he left to us a mission to proclaim his name so that people may have hope and it should propel you to mission. Al Mohler writes this, quote, The church does not have mere permission to celebrate the resurrection. It has a mandate to proclaim the truth that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrected Lord gave the church a sacred commission to take the gospel throughout the world, end quote. So not only is it a comfort, it propels us to mission as people of victory because of our union with our Lord Jesus Christ. May I encourage us, beloved, to boldly and lovingly Continue to devote your life to proclaiming the truth of the risen, exalted Christ as the only hope for sinners. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, this proclamation is of first importance. Lord, we thank you for the reminder on special occasions like these when we as believers can gather corporately to worship you and to be reminded of your amazing power of your unfathomable grace and having sent your son Jesus into the world to live the perfect life that we could never live to die for our sins in our place satisfying the fullness of your wrath because of our sins and you raised him in power and you exalted him to your right hand and he is the only savior and lord of the world. And Lord, we want to be people who worship Him, who exalt Him. We want to be a church who is a Christ-exalting church. Help us, Lord, that by Your Spirit, by the guidance of Your Holy Word, Your precious, sufficient, inerrant, authoritative Word, we may be people who speak the truth in love to a world that desperately needs hope. And help us to live as people of hope, not in despair, Not as people who, Lord, are defeated by our sin and defeated by the circumstances of life. Help us to remember that this is not our best life now, but this is merely merely our introduction into fullness of life into the future for eternity. Help us to remember that. We thank you and we praise you and we ask all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.